Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Good morning, welcome to the show. We begin with the saddest news imaginable. Lester Piggott has died at the age of 86 the foremost jockey of his generation, perhaps any generation, certainly the most recognisable face, figure, household name in the sport post-war. He has died peacefully in the early hours of the morning in Switzerland. His family are shocked and devastated, according to his daughter, Maureen Haggis, to whom I spoke a couple of hours ago, and they have asked um, for their privacy to be respected at this difficult time. Lester Piggott has died aged 86 and we'll be spending much of the next two and a half hours of this program reflecting on what has been quite an extraordinary life in and out of the saddle. Jockey Neil Callan and trainer David Manuizier, my guests on Luck on Sunday this morning. Neil, this is far from the way we expected to, to open up today's program. A man who leaves a, a quite remarkable legacy and, and impact on, on the sport. Yeah, it's um, look, you know, it's it's obviously very sad to have it uh, so quickly. When 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 yesterday we always thought he was improving, so it was in 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 the media. But yeah, look, um, it hits everybody in different ways. But me as a jockey, you know, when we were young, when when you everybody says, "Oh, you're going to be a jockey," like who would you aspire to be? It's always Leicester. So um, yeah, look, you know. It's, very difficult to soak it up, but um, you know, I suppose at the same time, then you've got to celebrate how good a jockey he was. So mm. he was um, way ahead of his generation and, and one of the best I think we'll ever see. We'll be hearing very shortly from uh, Bruff Scott, who chronicled his career and worked with him very closely at the Evening Standard many years ago. We'll also be hearing from Willie Carson, uh, from Bruce Raymond later in the programme, who was a contemporary of Leicester's. Um, and Peter Chapel-Hyam, who trained Rodrigo de Triano, Leicester's final classic winner, his 30th classic winner, nine derbies, a man who started race riding David Menuzier at the age of 12 years. A extraordinary man. Uh, it's an absolutely unbelievable, and uh, uh, I don't think we'll see another one uh, anytime soon, anyone of, of his calibre. Uh, I'm, I'm interested from your perspective, as somebody growing up in, in France, the extent to which his, his legend... Um, reached beyond these borders? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, and obviously, uh, he was uh, from a generation before my generation. But, but um, yeah, look, um, he, that, that's, that's how much of an impact he's had on, on racing worldwide. You know, when, uh, when they are not from your generation, they belong to history with a capital H. And Neil, you touched on it there. It had been known for some time that Leicester had been quite unwell, 
86 years old. But you know, there was a, a tangible sense of shock because for all somebody's not not been very well, you, you feel with a, a man of his standing that he's sort of going to be there forever. Well, when, when you talk about legends, you know, people that you look up to like these in whatever sport or whatever way of life you, you are, you know, you always kind of believe that uh, people like uh, Leicester are invincible. You know, they're going to be around forever, like you say. So, you know, look, everybody's going to die at some stage. So, you know, you don't really think about it until it's, it's, it's something like this has happened. And look, you know, 86, he's, he's got to a great age, you know, considering, mm. you know, in, in, in his era as a jockey, there wasn't the science or, or the, the expertise that we jockeys have nowadays. And, uh, you know, in those days, they probably abused their bodies. So it's it's probably, you know, to someone like him to get to that sort of age, it's, it's pretty amazing. And uh, look, like I say, you know, somebody like him, it is a very sad, sad day. It's probably the saddest day in racing history. But, you know, it's it's we've got to celebrate him too, you know. He, he, he was uh, an icon. And... David, you were you were supposed to have a runner in the in the derby this week. Mm -hmm. This was your your hope, your dream. Yep. The excitement must have been you know so great, and then the disappointment equally so when yep. when the horse couldn't run. You just had that little taste of what it might be to be involved in this race. Here's a guy who won it nine times. I know it's it's absolutely exceptional. You know it's exceptional to have a runner. So to have a winner is even more exceptional and having none of them is, is absolutely... Uh, well, it's for, for us small people, it's very hard to, to imagine, yeah. And uh, Neil, you're, you're someone who's experienced the cut and thrust of race riding around the world. And you, know, you spent so much time in, in, in Hong Kong where you know, no quarter was asked or given it. It, it strikes me that, that here was a man who really changed the way that, that riders operated. That, you know he was a ruthless competitor as well as a brilliant sportsman yeah like like i say in the in, in that sort of era like he was so far ahead of his time and i think that's probably why he was the best um he just he just had it he just had it he just had everything you know um and yeah look you know in hong kong it's it's even in england now i've noticed since i've come back it's it's a uh, dog eat dog you know kind of way but um he, he, he revolutionised, I think, uh, the way racing sports people and, you know, jockeys, how they operated, like, what they're doing now is what he was doing then. So, you know, he, he was so, so, just so way ahead of his time. And, of course, the comeback, I think, is, is one of the most critical parts of the story, isn't it? You know, here is someone who, who came back to the saddle well into his 50s and but weeks later won a, won a Breeders' Cup race on Royal Academy. Well, it just goes to show you how good he was. Um, you know, most most jockeys, when you spend a month out, whether you're injured or whether you take uh, the winter off and you come back riding, it normally takes you about a week to kind of get your feeling back. It's like riding a bike. You never forget how to ride. But I mean, like the tempo and, and you know, the race riding, like you've got to make decisions at split second, you know. To be able to come back at that sort of level on the biggest stage of the Breeders' Cup, and uh, win a Breeders' Cup mile on Royal Academy was, was just, and, and the ride he gave it, like, unbelievable. Yeah, an extraordinary, an extraordinary man, an extraordinary life. If you're just tuning in, 
Uh, you are watching Luck on Sunday with the news that Lester Piggott has died at the age of 86, uh, peacefully in the early hours of this morning uh, in Switzerland. Uh, his daughter Maureen Haggis contacted us uh, this morning to say the family was shocked and devastated. Um, they would hope that their uh, request for privacy uh, was respected uh, in the in the short term. Um, Bruff Scott joins us now from from his home. Uh, Bruff, uh, a very sad morning. We knew that Lester had been unwell, but still, there is um, there is something that is is very hard to come to terms with for anyone who's been a fan of this sport for any length of time. Yeah, he he cast the the longest shadow anyone's ever cast over racing. Uh, and for me, he was my my first and greatest hero because uh, I was I was five when he wrote his first win at age 12. So I was eight when he was uh, he rode first rode in the Derby at 15 and then won the Eclipse that year. I was second in the King George. Uh, I was uh, 11 when he won the derby, remember I'd never say die, and then got banned at Ascot and was made to go back to work at a yard. Uh, and he, I mean, make it, today's young prodigies, nothing. And then he got the job while he's having to work in the yard as first jockey to the top trainer, Noel Merlis. Uh, he, was, he was quite incredible. Uh, he, he, he danced to a different tune than any jockey before or since. You can argue about people's relative merits, but there was, there never has been and there never will be anyone like Lester Piggott. Bruff, I, I want to ask you about your own memories because they're clearly so vivid. Your own memories of Lester winning that first derby as a, as a teenager and the sensation that that was <sighs> countrywide because of the prestige and standing of the derby at that time in the early 1950s. Here was a, a teenage riding sensation. What, what kind of impact did that have? Well, by the time he won the derby, it was sort of, how hadn't he won it before? And he's only 18. Remember, he first rode it on, in, when he was 15. He, he, I can remember, because I was just about reading, wasn't that five? I remember the headlines when he won his first race aged 12. And then he was a little round-cheeked uh, boy uh, looked rather sweet, <laughs> and he uh, he was sensation then. He, he at fifteen he rode Zucchero in the Derby, who no one else could make start, and then he rode to be second in the King George, the first King George. He he was then second in the Derby when he was sixteen, and of course called Gay Time, and objected afterwards and wanted to object, and they had to stop him. So he was he was the, and I remember him telling me this because a lot of the jockeys. Gordon Richards of this world, they'd been top jockeys before the war. So they were quite old men. There was this young kid, and he was his bred to, he was Keith Piggott's son, he was a very tough jump jockey. His grandfather, never forget, Ernie Piggott, won two Grand Nationals, one at Gatwick and one at Aintree, uh, and rode for the Tsar as well. Uh, but Lester, at 18, it was inevitable. And he rode, one of, one of, also he was an outsider, which is a surprise. And it was a 20 to 1 or something. Never, it was called Never Say Die. So it was, I mean, it was absolutely the headline. Absolutely the headline. And we're having a look now at Never Say Die winning the 1954 derby. And, and Neil ought to have a look at Leicester's leg. He was riding jumping leg for quite long for jumping now. But he could, he could, 
he could do anything on the horse. But uh, you see, look at look at and again when he when he was riding these early days, there were no crash helmets like now. They just sort of lid, which would come off, and no goggles either. Uh, I asked him what it was like riding the November handicap at Manchester when it was covered in mud and 30 runners. He said, you just had to shut your eyes. Uh, but he, he, the impact of him was extraordinary. He was a number, he from very, very early on, early teenager, he was that greatest of sporting compliments, uh, indeed national compliments. He was just known by his first name, Lester. You know, everyone knew there was only one Lester. Uh, and who do you think you are, Lester Pickett, was one of those things that, that people would say. And every, when I was riding, every lad would talk about Lester Pickett and aim to look like Lester Pickett. Uh, and of course, he ruined a whole generation of, of young jockeys because they tried to imitate the, the inimitable because he was very, he was tall for jockey and then he rode very short and they, they tried to imitate him. Uh, and they, they, the real genius was in his head not in actually his mechanics, uh, but he was, I, I, I've been close to quite a lot of different sorts of people, but uh, he is the only person I've known quite well who, if the definition of genius is not just to do the things that other people aspire to, but to, to do the things that other people couldn't even dream of, well, what he could do on a racehorse, Lester Piggott, he was a genius. Ruff, when do you believe, having followed his career so closely and been intertwined with it, when do you believe that he was at his absolute best, strongest? What was his, what was his pomp? 1970. I would say Nijinsky was his pomp and it was the ultimate alliance with, with Vincent O'Brien. If Nijinsky had won the arc and retired, he would be unquestionably seen as the greatest horse ever, because he was he was much more majestic than anything else. And of course, he was less to pick it to Vincent O'Brien. The first time he had to give him a crack here, he pulls him out his ear. We'll see. He turns the whip over once, uh, and once he did that, see, he comes coasting past, and that horse beat Vigier, and he was. At that stage, don't forget, he'd left the top, top trainer in Britain to go to, to Vincent O'Brien. And that was seen to go through. That was seen as incredibly um, bold and revolutionary. And he, what will, I mean, at this time of year, if there wasn't a definite O'Brien runner or something, you, well, if they hadn't made up their mind, what will Leicester ride was the big talking point. And you know, unlike now, the newspapers will carry it all the time, but in the seventies, with the early seventies, he was he was magnificent, and he could do he could he could do the two extremes of jockeys. I remember him winning the July Cup on a horse called Sari Tamer, which was, and I'm standing by the hundred yards from the finish, and he was a, a sprinter, but he needed driving, and Leicester was head down, really driving, whip cracking, but really wanted someone to really lift a colt and drive it, you'd have Leicester. On the other hand, right back to Park Top and actually Petit Etoile, you had a filly that you had to just coax with your sort of fingertips 
no one could do it better than Leicester. He, he, he could roll a horse under him like no one else has ever done before. He, he, he could roll them because he understood their heads better than anyone else. Uh, he, he was at his pomp when he was strong and, uh, and healthy uh, and he got his weight under control. And of course, he then visited Brown. Everybody wanted him. And so he could do what he liked. And that in the end was his, his other downfall. And he's got his great redemption was to come back and win the Breeders' Cup and everything else. I'll, I'll come to that in a, in a moment, Bruff, because it, it's just the most extraterrestrial story in its own right, really. But I wanted to, to ask you, as, as someone who was anchoring television coverage through much of the, the 1970s and 80s, whether you believe that Lester Piggott really was the, the, first, the first jockey for the modern television age, really, the first jockey superstar for the modern television age, the golden age, I suppose, of, of TV. Well, he, he, again, Lester, you know, he used to make you laugh a lot. And so on this sad day, you have to remember the funny bits too. It's very important, I think. I know his family would like that. But, I mean, he, he, was, um, he was made for television as regards visuals. I have to tell you, he wasn't made for television for audios. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> Blood Out of a Stone was quite simple compared to uh, TV interviews with Lester Pickett to some extent. Uh, I mean, and he, don't forget, he, he always had had a hearing impediment, which he could switch on slightly, became worse when he, when he needed it. And, he, and his speech wasn't great. So speech on television was difficult. And I'll tell you a story because it, coming into Derby week, I mean, inevitably you had to have, I didn't try and not bother him, but he, on Derby day, you must come on lesson. Oh, yeah, I'll come on, he used to mutter, don't forget. And so he agreed he was going to come on this, whichever Derby it was, um, the days when Derby was on a Wednesday and it was a huge deal and everything else. And he agrees to come on and uh, I've got Charlie Forkus, who's still with us, uh, chasing him. So he, he, he's coming on, he's, he's, just, he's going to come, he's going to come. And they're getting, like, in my years, you know, the hurry, hurry up, hurry up. Uh, you know, we're just about to start, we're going to have to go live. And anyway, we get him down by the winning post, seems a good idea at the time. And I ask him a question the opening question, what's it like to be here again, all that stuff that you do so well, Nick, much better than I ever used to. <laughs> uh, I asked him the question, and as he went to answer, and he tried pretty hard, uh, the band, which I hadn't realised was behind us, started up. And if ever there was an unequal struggle, it was me trying to, I must have put that microphone right down his throat, trying to hear the words that he was actually saying. But no, he didn't used to say much, but he, he was... He made a, I, I think the right word is, he had a sort of Brando-esque deal. Yeah. He realised that he could use the speech impediment to his advantage. And if the phone rang and he answered it and there was silence, it'd be Lester. And in normal phone conversations, you say, hello, Nick, uh, or hello, Bruff, and I say, hello, Nick, and you meet in the middle. With Lester, you'd say, hello, Hello, and you've already moved right over to his side of the fence before he says anything. And then you have to make your sort of speech, and then he sort of mutters yes or no. And he, he used that dry words that he, so he didn't say very much, but he could say, he could hit the right buttons. And people remembered, because you can remember, he used to say two or three things. Uh, I mean, I remember him this time of year, 
in the beginning of May when what will Leicester ride and everyone's panicking and I was talking to him about it and, and he, he just muttered, it'll work out, it usually does, <laughs> and he'd end up on the favourite. Uh, he, he was he was much the biggest star in our family. Yeah. Yeah, it's that it's that star quality at a particular time of the popularity of the sport as well that you just you just feel that, that that his his life and career resonated like nobody's really could now outside the sport. And of course, what then happened later in life uh, and his just ridiculously improbable comeback. Um, you know, only served to to emphasise that. Rob, I, I want to take you back to that period, late eighties, into his comeback at nineteen ninety, and and just for you as a, a journalist broadcaster following the sport at the time, just give us an indication as to to just how extraordinary that was. Well, the first thing we have to remember that he went to jail um, for the tax for because he he couldn't get it that, that actually. He'd always before been able to sort of ride his way out of trouble and duck and dive. And, you know, the inner revenue, you can't do that to it. And I remember walking down the Rowley Mile with him um, a week before the trial and him saying to me, well, that's so sadly, and uh, I can't see the point of them locking me up. And I remember, you know, they'd been through all the hoops lots of times uh, and he, he just couldn't really get it. But... He did the year in jail, it was jolly tough for him. And then afterwards, it was very, very tough for him trying to reboot. And I remember being rung up when he was in a, a, a friend of his, he, something had happened that he was very quite worried that Leicester's actual hold it together. Uh, and actually the comeback, Visitor Brown said, why don't you come and ride something for me uh, in a sort of charity race? And, even though he was 55 or whatever it was, he came back. But then, I mean, he had been, he'd had an enormous career. He'd been this biggest ever figure and not only retired, but gone to jail. Uh, uh, and then suddenly he's going to come back. He comes back, he rides at Nottingham, I think it was. Um, and then we are, we did it live. Um, we are at Belmont, which of course, is within the time frame, as you know, for the Breeders' Cup, uh, when he rides for Vincent O'Brien on Royal, um, what's it? Uh, Academy. Royal Academy. And um, it was a cold day, and I'll tell you this story, because, you know, it, it, it couldn't happen, uh, and he he dropped him in last, and um, obviously people like me had watched him, well, I'd watched him since I could, was conscious, really, because I was... A, aware when he was 12 <laughs> and I've been aware ever since uh, and he dropped him out last and then he spun him out remember he only won a neck I think but he was he pulled him out he was always going to win you just sort of saw him reeling them in somehow and then he picked the stick up and gave him about three and I promise you as he went over the line the hair stood up on the back of my neck because it, this couldn't happen he was retired, he was gone, he was a person of my very childhood. And here he was coming back. Look, he hasn't won it yet, but he was always going to win it, and he wins it. I, 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 he had gone past the line. I, I just couldn't, couldn't believe it. Uh, and, and then 
he came back in and I remember it was a sort of tumult down by the rail where our TV spot was and they pulled him towards us uh, and there was a dark day, darkish afternoon and they had lights on him and I could see his teeth, I could see the mud on his teeth but his, his teeth were showing because he had a big smile uh, and I, um, yeah, he came towards us and you, know, you say, well done, whatever. Uh, and um, yeah, I think made a couple of remarks, but then I had to sort of ask that basic question. Look, it's all very well, but you are 97 years old and you have been away and everything else. How, how on earth do you do it? And he said, this is a wet old day. He said this wonderful line. He said, oh no, he said, you never forget. <laughs> and the, one of the few intelligent things I've ever done on television was to shut up and just let that line linger and didn't say anymore. You never forget uh, and we'll never forget him. Braff, thank you very much. Um, a sad day indeed. Uh, thank you for your recollections of, uh, of Lester Piggott. Um, we'll catch up, no doubt, very soon. Thank you. Good luck, everyone. Ruff's got there. Um, memories of a, an amazing day at, at Belmont Park, Neil Callan, and before that, such a such a glorious career. But if it's one of those days, isn't it? If people ask you, could if you could go back to any one of these and and enjoy it, God, I'd love to have been there in 1990. I'd like to have been uh, in his era, uh, watching him ride um, or to ride against him. Um, look, he's just exceptional and. And Bruff summarised for a long period of time about him. But to put it in a nutshell, there's only, in any sport, there's, there's always one. And it's just because they're naturally gifted. He was just naturally gifted. And they just, you know, you, 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 can, you can work hard to improve your ability or to get better at something or to, you know, try and imitate somebody. But... People like Leicester, when, when you just have something, you just have it, and it comes naturally. And I, I, was, I was struck there, David, by what Bruff said, that he, he almost ruined a whole generation of jockeys because they all tried to copy him, <laughs> and you couldn't copy him. No, you couldn't, and <clears throat> what's amazing watching the, the replays is the, the confidence. He knows, you know, he gets on the horse, and he knows exactly what the horse is like and what he should do and where the, the finish line is. And he never panics, you know, it's, it's, it's just beautiful to watch because uh, it's like it's all planned and boom, he's there on the line. It's, it's magical to watch, really. Mm. And it, it has, yeah, the, the interesting thing for me, Neil, is, is how few jockeys of a previous era, how, uh, how they stand the test of time. When you watch those races now, whether you think, oh, well, everything looks better now. In most sports, doesn't it? Everything looks better now than it did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Not necessarily so in this case. No, like, I mean, like, I go back to before, like the sciences and, and the technology and then the, the preparation and everything, like the amount of, you know, like you have nutritionists now and you have like um, people that train you up and, and conditioning and everything, you know? And in those days, you didn't have that, you know? So, but to look at him, when you look back at his videos or whatever, you'd actually, if it wasn't in black and white half of it, you'd be <laughs> thinking like he's, he's a new age jockey. He was so far ahead of them. You know, and, and my, my son, 
Mm -hmm. He's 15 now, Jack, and he wants to be a jockey. And uh, last year sometime, I bought Lester's book and I gave it to him. And I said, uh, this, is, this, is, this is what you want to be. This is who you want to be like, so. He, um, his, his, you know, this is what I'm saying, like, people in the future, in the past, wherever, they're always gonna be aspire to him, so like, like the legend lives on, as I say. Let's talk to another legend of, of that era, Willie Carson, who, who joins me now. Um, Willie, good morning. Uh, Lester Piggott has died at the age of, of 86. It's, it's something in a strange sort of way you never thought you'd, you'd say or hear. Just, just tell me your thoughts today. Well, good morning, everyone. A sad day. Um, iconic Lester um, has passed away. And I'm sitting here after hearing the news and thinking somebody's taken an arm off me um, because he's been basically part of my life ever since I got into racing. I started with the, Gerald Armstrong, who was the family whom Lester married. Um, I, and then I went to Sam Armstrong, who was his father-in-law. And, of course, I would work with him at a very early age. And, of course, when you're an apprentice and you're riding work with this, well, he wasn't quite a legend in those days, but he was very good, and he had an aura about him. He, he just seemed to know what he was doing. He didn't care about what anybody else thought of him. He just got on and did what he thought was right. And, of course, as things have turned out, we know that he had this mental attitude. He knew what the horse was thinking, and he was able to do it on the race course. He, he never seemed to make too many mistakes. He always seemed to ride the horse the right way, but, oh, obviously jockeys do make mistakes, but this guy made less mistakes than most. I, I was thinking about some of those those great sportsmen and tributes that get paid to them and you know, quite often you hear words like aura that you've used force of personality the extent to which just by being lester piggott he could put his rivals on the on the back foot is that is that something you you recognize oh yes oh yes um um when you were in his presence you felt the aura um because his quietness he <laughs> he didn't say anything um, but he just had this aura about him, and when he went out on the race course, he was always winning. And um, basically, we jockeys, we had to up our game uh, to try and beat him. But I, I would suggest that um, Pat Edry, myself, Bruce Raymond, we all improved as jockeys because of Lester Piggott. We had to. We had to, because he was... He was such a good fellow on, on a horse. Um, he just seemed to have this <coughs> calmness, and he just sat there. With, and later in life, when he, he got his irons very short, and uh, he just pivoted on top of a horse. His balance was fantastic. And then, of course, he strengthened the finish. Um, he... he, he basically in those days was just like 
Beckham is today. He was if he couldn't walk down the street, you know, without people stopping for autographs, and he he was a a phenomenon, and and um, we all appreciated that. Not all the time, of course, because we <laughs> we had to compete with him and we had to improve. Um, he he was a quiet person, ruthless, absolutely ruthless, but. He got the job done, and he was different. He wasn't like anybody else. He he just got on with his... He was in a cocoon himself, and he kept doing that. He was... Uh, well, it was magical, actually, to watch. When I look back on it, you would say he was just a genius, absolutely a genius on a horse. He always seemed to get into the horse's head. He knew how to ride them, and... Also, he would ride a lot of work and find out about his opponents, and he knew how to beat them. Um, so he was a difficult man to beat in the race. And the word genius is possibly, you know, it's, it's there. And that was Lester Pickett, the genius on a horse. Um, I've got to ask you, Willie, about 1977. And I that... thought you might. <laughs> it's the... It's the race that defines, in a sense, your, your rivalry with him, or perhaps the way you were feeling at that time. You were at the absolute peak of your powers and going to win the derby on Hot Grove. And here comes Lester Piggott on the minstrel. Just, just take me back to that day, how you felt through the final stages of that race and then immediately afterwards. Well, um, I, I, I remember Lester had won on this horse and he didn't want him. And, of course, I got the ride, um, and he was riding the minstrel, who obviously was a Vincent O'Brien, another dancer horse. And uh, coming into the last furlong, I thought, I had kicked it. You see, my horse was a stayer. There was only four horses in the whole derby that year when um, there was four. Oh, oh, they could stay at the mile and a half really well, so I kicked very early. I, kicked, I actually kicked to get my horse his stamina to, to, you know, to get him to show his best form. And, of course, here comes this white-faced bloody horse, uh, the minstrel, and we had a ding-dong. Uh, we go in jail now with the sticks nowadays. Uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, um, my horse never won another race, I don't think, and uh, the minstrel went on and won about three other Group 1 races. After this, it woke him up. Um, the, the third horse was well beaten, blushing room, didn't stay, and of course it was a, a, a ding-dong finish. And the, and the funny the funny side of Leicester, you know, <clears throat> he's got a funny side to him, you know, he's human. And uh, years later, he said to me, uh, I'll do it in his voice, um, yeah, you made it hard for me, didn't you? <laughs> 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 Which is <laughs> because about, I kicked early. <laughs> um, which is about as great a compliment in a way as he as he could pay. I mean, would you say that was one of your best Derby rides? Oh no, 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 no. I don't like watching that actually. But uh, um, but the the horse, I got the best out of my horse. That's what I mean. He was riding the champion. I was riding basically a hurdler. But. Um, uh, no, I'll go back to Troy for that. But anyway, um, Lester was... 
Well, as I said earlier, he made us better jockeys because he was so good. And when you, he was in the race, you would be thinking about him. What's he going to do? How can I beat him? Major brain work. He, he was, um, you know, he's always in your mind. You go to bed and you sleep. You, you, you know, you have nearly nightmares about him. That's how good he was. Um, and the man never said anything, you know. <laughs> he just did a few grunts. Uh, and, uh, but he did his actions, his riding spoke. And uh, you can see by his record, nine derbies. I, a few of them, of course, he, he waited for the last week and got on the best horse, but that's beside the point. He rode nine derbies. That is unbelievable. Every jockey who rides is lucky to ride one, but he rode nine. It's a, it's a record, possibly, that will never be broken. And I'm sure there's other records that Leicester have done will be hard to beat. Um, I'm feeling quite sad in a way because that man has been part... I'm, I'm getting a bit emotional now. Um, that man has been part of my life for um, a long time. And uh, I'm sorry that, um, that, that he's passed away. I know that age gets you. Um, maybe it's because I'm thinking it's going to be me next. <laughs> Um, there's not many, not many of our generation left. Uh, Jimmy, Joe, um, um, who can, Pat's gone. Um, uh, Bruce Wayman, he's still with us. They tried, they tried to get him and they couldn't get him. Um, but um, yeah, it was a great generation, the picket generation. That's what we're going to call it. And he did things that other jockeys could never ever do. He was just magic, absolutely magic, but a terrible opponent <laughs> because we could never beat the, the long fella. <laughs> yeah. Willie, I appreciate your time very much this morning. Um, was very sorry to have to impart the news to you earlier on. Um, thanks for speaking so beautifully about someone who was such an important part of your life, and we'll see you very soon. Willie Carson, you have that sense of real depth of, of camar camaraderie is the wrong word, but real depth of, of companionship, I suppose, somebody who was just a part of his life for so long. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's more like a respect mm. um, to, a real how depth. to how good he was. And that just goes to show you that, you know, they're sportsmen, they're jockeys, professionals. And like Willie's, you know, shown compassion towards someone that he, like, was trying to be for so many years. So it just goes to show you that how how touching he is, or how he touches people, you know, competitors, friends, family, whoever, even even to the normal people down the street, you know, in in that era, watching him on TV, it just goes to show you, um, you know, he he, he wasn't. Obviously, he was, he, he was a top-class jockey, but you know when they touch you beyond that, then you just show how much respect that you had for someone like him. And all those memories come, come flooding back. I mean, Bruff Scott talks about Lester Pigott in his pomp. 
1970. We've just seen the minstrel there in 1977, winning the derby as a teenager in the, in the early 1950s. But his final classic, his 30th classic, came well into his sixth decade, well into his 50s, part of his comeback, 1992. Rodrigo de Triano won the 2000 guineas, trained by one of the youngest trainers in the country at the time, Peter Chappell-Hyam, um, for, for Robert Sangster. Um, Peter's on the line now. Morning, Peter. Are you there? Have we got Peter Chappell-Hyam? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Not at all, Peter. Good. Good to have you with us, um, because this this is a very important chapter of the of the Lester Piggott story as as well. And I know I know him riding for you in those Robert Sangster silks, as you were telling me a, a few weeks ago, was was by no means a foregone conclusion. But sort of how how did you feel at the time to to sort of be part of part of this legend, part of this story? It was just unbelievable for a young man like myself to have Lester Piggott riding for you, like. Uh, he was my hero, he was everyone's hero. And uh, everything went like clockwork. Lester and the horse threw each other down to the ground. And you, you were saying that you know, even though Lester had had this incredible association with Robert Sangster that had gone back, you know, decades, that, that Robert wasn't quite sure whether this was the right call. No, he wasn't, no. He said it's, basically said to me, it's up to you at the end of the day. Uh, where his words were on your head, be it. Uh, and then I kept pestering, and in the end he said, "Rightio, get the old man. And that was it. <laughs> get, get the old man, and the old man, man delivered. And yeah. Willie Carson there was talking about the confidence that he carried around with him. And he was just, he was, he was, he had like a, an awe about him all the time, around him. And I remember working before the Judmont, uh, when he'd uh, we'd had time off and brought him back, and I galloped him and left the road, him. and he pulled up. And the first words he said to me was, "If you had him this right for the derby, I wouldn't have off the bridle." Uh, and then, you know, it was just it was just Lester. And we're just having a look at the closing stages of the of the Guineas now, and yeah, coming out of the the Greenham, you couldn't have had quite. The same assurance, assuredness that he did that this that this was going to happen on on Guinea's Day, could you? Uh, not not really, no. Because I, I, obviously it was only two weeks between the Greenham and the, and the Guinea, so I couldn't do much that much with him. But I did give him one gallop, and Rory O'Dowd who looked after him, Rory rode him, and he did work superbly well. And when you're young, you're brash, uh, and I did did get the feeling that we were back in the right place. Because oh. after the green, and Willie, Willie used to ride in, you see, Carson. And Willie said to me that I don't think he's trained on, basically. And I thought, oh, God. But I knew in my heart of hearts that surely he had. Peter, I've been talking quite a bit this morning about the, the impact of, of Lester Piggott. The impact he had on on all generations. When when you were growing up as a as a racing fan, tell me about your feelings towards him. About about what sort of what sort of impression he left on you. Well, there are very few people in racing who, who are known by their first names: Frankie, Lester, probably Henry. 
Uh, and that's by the general public, not just us people who think it's a huge world in our, in our business. And you mentioned Leicester's name. Everyone knows Leicester. Everyone has got a story to tell about Leicester, whether they backed him in the five o'clock at somewhere, they bumped into him or whatever. He was worldwide, uh, worldwide known, if you know what I mean. And I remember being on a school trip and I was a school bookmaker. And when the Minstrel beat Hotgrove, and I lost quite a bit of money that day, because <laughs> everyone backed Leicester, and I'd backed Hotgrove. Uh, so that was my first, really, I think, dividing memory was Leicester on the Minstrel, which was an unbelievable ride. Yeah. And then people saying, oh, he was too hard on him, this and that. Well, the Minstrel never, <laughs> he won the King George. He was an unbelievable racehorse. And Leicester was the perfect jockey. It's um, it's a sad day for sure, but it certainly is. but a a day to a day to celebrate a com a complete one off. Yeah, long live the king. The king is dead. Basically, it's he's a. I don't need to say it, but everyone else can, says it sort of thing, and he was, and he is the greatest jockey we ever had. Peter, thanks so much. No problems whatsoever. It's a pleasure. Peter Chappellheim, the man who trained Rodrigo de Triana. I want to talk to you, David Menuisier, from a, from a trainer's perspective, really, about how much of a difference a jockey can, can really make. Because it's a, it's a widely debated topic, <coughs> isn't it? No, but what, what's, to me, what's really striking when you watch the videos is uh, his confidence, but his confidence will bring confidence all around him as well. So if you book, if you book a, a jockey of his caliber, you are serene yourself. So it will give the horse a chance mm -hmm. because you will do everything in such a positive, with a positive vibe that the horse will thrive as well. He's going to make his horse feeling, or you, he's making directly and indirectly the horse feeling great and possibly better than, uh, than he is. And uh, watching those videos, I'm actually, because I haven't, <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly young, and I haven't watched that many mm -hmm. races that he rode. And the few videos we watched uh, this morning, I'm actually flabbergasted by, by the, I don't mean to be controversial, but he doesn't even look that tidy on a racehorse, but he just makes them travel so great that they just run for him. Jockeys nowadays are much more stylish than he was, in my opinion, anyway, I don't want to be. But um, horses just run for him. They just travel very strongly. And, and I think it's the, the confidence and that he brings to, to the entourage as well as being a, a fantastic jockey. And also, as Willie mentioned earlier, uh, the fact that all other jockeys try and, and uh, come to his level so obviously somebody like him will bring the, the whole industry uh, forward everybody has talked about this man's aura and the and the way that he had a an almost magical effect on horses but also how he could intimidate his his competition and how few people really are household names in this sport um, Lester was one in a, an era when the sport was at the peak of its popularity um, a man who has had a, 
an incredibly long and distinguished career and a career that overlapped with Leicester's is, is Frankie Dottori, who, who joins me now. Frankie, good morning. Good morning, guys. Um, a sad day. We knew Leicester had been unwell. But as I've said already through the last hour, there, there still seems something not quite real about saying he's, he's no longer with us. You, I know, have some very, very fond memories of Leicester. Yeah, listen, I've been uh, very close with Maureen and uh, his son Jamie about his wealth, his health uh, this last few weeks. So, uh, you know, when uh, when actually Maureen gave me a phone call, I knew it was bad news. Uh, you know, I I lived in Italy, so when I came to, to this country, I, I was not afraid of Leicester like all the other jockeys were. So I had a quite a very friendly relationship because I took him uh, as, a, as a normal person. We had some great banters together. Actually, I, I, when I started riding, he already retired. So I rode him as a, when he was a trainer, and I lost my claim on his horses. And then when he made a comeback, I, I rode with him as a jockey. So we had a very communal friends together, Barney Curley. So uh, I got to know him quite well. And uh, yeah, I mean, I always I, I saw a different side of Leicester compared to others. I said, I've seen a uh, a very dry sense of humour, a person that, that that he laughed and smiled, and uh, and you know I, I really enjoyed his company. And uh, look, it goes without saying, he's, he's the best he's ever lived as a jockey. And uh, but I, I I more att attached to him on a uh, personal side than on 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 his on what he's achieved in in racing. And uh, you know he is a big loss. Uh, I've lost a friend and. Um, what else can you say? Is uh, it was is, like you said, as soon as you mentioned his name, Leicester, then uh, you don't have to, you don't have to say anything else. It's interesting you say that you know you you will remember him very fondly as a as a, as a person because you know and as as Bruff has touched on as Willie's touched on he he was enigmatic. There were so few people who really knew who he was. Give me an idea of of Leicester Piggott the man. Well, he's, he actually was uh, very thoughtful and, uh, you know, you, you know well, I was asking for advice and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, you know, and, and, and also he had a good, a good sense of humour. I used to absolutely rip him to shreds when he came back and I told him how old he was and, and I told him one day I'm going to stuff in the museum, jokingly. And then, uh, I mean, he took, he took it all in and then one day got in the Goodwood in a big field race, he, he reached over and, uh, and and grabbed my crown jewels for Brian and gave it a good squeeze. <laughs> and that, that's typical him. And I remember we crossed the line and said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'll teach you a lesson for being cheeky. So yeah, that kind of sense of humor as well, what the people didn't see. Uh, he wasn't just a mean and uh, a ruthless person. He also had, had a good dry sense of humor. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the way I would like to remember him. And, and you were by his side when the statue of, of Leicester was unveiled as well. That must have been quite a quite a special moment for you. Yeah, obviously, uh, of course, uh, very special. And uh, yeah, he was one of my heroes. And uh, you know, I was I'm one of the lucky ones. And I, I did ride with him. Uh, I, you know, I was in the race when he won the Royal Academy, and you know, I've never seen anything like it in my life. What, what, what the man could do, it was amazing. I, I, I must confess, I'd completely forgotten that you were you were in that race back at, at Belmont Park in in 1990. What were you riding, Mark of Distinction? I was riding Mark of Distinction. Yeah, I mean, I never seen anything like a, a, a person of his age, 
a month from retirement after being out of the saddle for five years, and he does something like that. It's just just shows you, you know, what 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 the legend is. What was the what was the atmosphere like back in the in the jockeys' room afterwards with all the all the sort of international I, superstars? I think uh, a sense of shock. <laughs> I mean, it was surreal, you know. Just and he just he just like was water off ducks back, you know. Just walked around like oh, this is normal. I mean, it's not normal. <laughs> I mean, we all kind of gobsmacked, but he just took it in his stride and strolled in like nothing happened. It's just amazing. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because. I... You're quite a cool customer. You've won a lot of big races. You've won more Group One races than anybody else. Um, but I've seen you on a on a race day, and you go into a zone, and it's quite obvious you're in that in that zone. It strikes me talking to people about Leicester that you'd never really know exactly um, what he was thinking, yeah, and that look, was part I, of his genius. I mean, I only saw him the last two or three years when he was in his late fifties riding. You know, and, and he still had that magical touch. Imagine what it was like when he when he's thirties, but I never got to experience that. But you know, what I saw in the in a grand old age of fifty six or fifty seven, what he was doing it was it was just you know, he was twenty or thirty years above everybody else in my sport, you know. And you you, you get there's only a few people in sports that you can mention for example, Tiger Woods and he was twenty years in front of everybody else. And Leicester, he was the same, you know. He's, you know, you know what, what I saw with my own eyes it was already remarkable. But it just, you know, I wish I saw him when, well, maybe I didn't wish him. <laughs> I don't with him when he was when he was in his thirties. But he was, it was just an uh, incredible uh, jockey. And the fact that that Leicester has died just six days before uh, this year's Derby, a race that he had this extraordinary mesmeric stranglehold over he will be uppermost in our minds next weekend uh, frankie when you canter down to the start on on pisba deal next next saturday i've no doubt lester will be will be in, in your thoughts yeah absolutely listen i i did send him a video message a couple of days ago and jamie showed it to him and he said they made him smile so i just want to think of that frankie thanks so much Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, we woke this morning to the very sad news of the death of simply the greatest, Lester Piggott, at the age of 86. He died in the early hours of this morning in Switzerland. His family say he died peacefully, many of them on their way now to, to pay their respects. They've asked um, for privacy over the next few days, quite understandably. His daughter Maureen um, described the family as shocked and devastated at the passing of one of the, the great towering figures of this sport. For many years, he was inextricably associated with uh, the Coolmore operation with Dr. Vincent O'Brien. Uh, John and Sue Magna have, uh, have sent a message um, this morning. They say, obviously a very sad day and so many stories and great memories for Sue and I. I remember meeting Lester in the parade ring before the 1971 Haydock Park Sprint Cup. A group of us had bought into Green God a couple of days before and Lester was up for what was to be the horse's final race. Don't be looking for me at the furlong pole. I won't be there until the line, he told me. And sure enough, he produced him with his trademark impeccable timing. At this time of year, MV, Dr O'Brien, was regularly frustrated by Lester playing musical chairs of what he would be riding in the derby. But he said, you have to put up with him Otherwise, you give the opposition a seven pound advantage. He really was the greatest. 
His family are in our thoughts today. John and Sue Magna and all at Coolmore Stud. What a legacy he has left and what a legacy at Coolmore and Ballydoyle he contributed to with Dr O'Brien, as I was saying. I think we can connect to Ballydoyle now and uh, say good morning to Aidan O'Brien. Aidan, good morning. Can you hear me? Uh, good morning, uh, Nick. How are you? Um, very well. Very sad news for, for us to, to wake up to today. Um, you more than anyone, particularly given where you're sitting now, will just appreciate what Lester Piggott's place was in, in the horse racing world. Just, just share your thoughts with me, if you will. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, obviously, he was very, very special man. Um, Nick, I used to come here uh, when I came uh, every year um, around classic time, uh, classic times, and we'd go through all the horses and he would give us his uh, thoughts uh, about him and what he taught, where this should go and, and uh, what his favourites were. And um, obviously, uh, it was something that I will never forget. Um, I, like he was, his, his uh, knowledge was second to none. I didn't say a lot, but every word he said, uh, you really hung on to um, because it, all, it all, all was meant so much and he knew there was so much experience in there, so, so much knowledge and uh, so much natural ability to assess a horse, I think. Um, uh, listen, so we're just so sorry for, obviously, uh, everybody um, um, that he, he has passed. Um, but like what, like, what a special man. And for us, it was absolute privilege that we... Uh, did know him and uh, got to know him uh, over the years. Uh, Aidan, there are very few riders, very few jockeys who can have had such a, an intrinsic involvement in the development of such an, an, an important operation. When, when you first arrived at, at Ballydoyle, was the sort of presence of that era around you? Could you sort of feel that, that sort of the presence of the, uh, of the, of the Dr. O'Brien, Piggott, um, sort of access there very much. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, Nick. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Dr. O'Brien and Mr. O'Brien were living here when we came first, so it, it definitely was. And uh, and like I said, Lester used to come every year um, and uh, look and go through the classic courses. He would sit in the jeep all morning uh, for one day every year when the classic started. So um, oh, very much so, and, and that presence is, is felt everywhere here. Like obviously, Doctor O'Brien and Mr. O'Brien and uh, Lester, um, and it's all over the place. It's on all the walls, and um, it's in the stables. It's the plaques around the walls of the horses, and uh, um, and obviously then with John and Sue and Coolmore as well. Like it, it's um, it's and obviously there's a, a big statue of Doctor O'Brien uh, in Rose Green, and there's a. a Big new statue of Leicester at the Cora. Um, so listen, it's um, it's going to be there forever, ever, ever, and ever, really. When you were when you were growing up and you were you were watching uh, Leicester riding, did he have the the same sort of impact in in Ireland as he did in in the UK? Did it did his impact transcend completely? I think it did. Yeah, no. Um, Oh, very much so. I remember when we started training, uh, Leicester rode a filly for us um, called Farfetched, um, owned by uh, uh, Paul Shannon's dad, Jimmy, and uh, his brother, um, Tom. So it was such a big thing for Leicester to come over uh, to the car and to ride their filly. Um, like, uh, we've never, um, we have um, never, I suppose, never experienced any 
present or aura around any person like that before, really. Um, and uh, listen, listen, he's just one of those very, very special people, really. Uh, that that must have been quite a, a feeling for you. I mean, how, how how old were you at the time when he he came over to ride for you? Yeah, sure. We would have we would have just started training, really, uh, uh, Nick. Um, uh, like really, but like obviously we would have uh, read and heard and saw all, all the things uh, before that. But for to be able to give him a leg up on one of our horses and for him to ride it in a race and then to come in and and to uh, feel the presence that he had, um, obviously uh, Jimmy and Tom and and uh, um, the the uh, I suppose the thrill and the mm. buzz that they got out of that and, and like every word that he would say um, was hung on to by everybody. And he didn't say m many words, but when he did say them, they, they meant so much, really. Oh, you were talking, I was, I was, I've got this sort of image now of him sitting in your, your Jeep alongside you, looking at classic horses in those, in, those, in those early days. Would the odd thing just, just stick with you? Would it, ever, would it ever make you think, oh, oh I, hadn't, I hadn't quite thought of that? Oh no, always, yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and like, it was only a, a comment he would make ever, but he, you would always know that he would have put a lot of thought into it before he'd say it, and even before he would have came here. Um, and obviously, I'd be talking to John and, and Sue about it, and and like, and then he used usually go and have dinner with them after here. So um, it was, it was always an awful lot thought of, of his opinion, um, and I suppose. I suppose we we like when he wasn't riding that time, like it was a, a very serious opinion. Obviously, when he was riding, he he had to keep his own opinion a little bit to himself because he obviously he was um, he was always wanting to ride the best horse and keeping everybody happy and all that. But when he, when he came to us, like it 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 um it meant so much um and uh, like it always steered us on a road, uh, whether to go Guineas or go Derby or go Oaks or go wherever um with it and, and like he was very um he, he had a great interest obviously he read everything in the papers and he followed all the horses but his opinion always meant so much really Aiden a great part of the the Piggott legacy the key part perhaps is is what he he did for the derby and how he rode around Epsom as someone who's had prodigious success as a trainer around Epsom do you still wonder at how he managed to ride nine Derby winners. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I suppose you, you, you would and you could. Um, but obviously, when you saw the way he rode, it, like it wasn't uh, different. He and I think he used to uh, horses used to relax very well from. But when he used to ask them to quicken, like they used to really take off with him. You know, he had a very unique, different style. And like he, he kind of really only barely touched them. And like he when he used to stand up on their backs. So I. I'd, I'd say horses used to feel like they were loose when he, he used to start to get behind them, you know. Um, like, he used to just barely stand on their backs, really. Um, like, an, like a, I'd say, um, if you were a horse, like, you would love if, if Lester was riding it because it's ne it was nearly like a bird on your back, you know. Like, he was just barely on them. Um, but they used to run with their heads out and down from. So he had, a, obviously, very unique style, a very special style, really. Um if you win the Derby next weekend, you will emulate his feet by getting a, a ninth Derby winner. If, if he was still with us and in the Jeep with you at, at Bally Doyle, what, what do you think would be his assessment of your, of your chances this year? And who do you think he would, 
he would like the look of best? Oh, geez, very. That's very uh, tough question, Nick. But I, I like he. Uh, like he 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 would have been watching the child's obviously and would have had a very strong opinion. Um, I'm I'm not really sure. I know that he always liked the horse with plenty of pace. Um, I think that was one of his, his big things. Um, but how a horse travelled with him, he, he was always a very one of one of his very um, must have things. I think in a horse, and that's what I always got from over the years. Like he always wanted a horse with speed, and he didn't never worried about stamina too much. Um, but I think speed is what he, he always kind of looked for in a horse. I'm just looking down your list of, of Derby winners, starting with the great Galileo, High Chaparral, Camelot, Ruler of the World, Australia, Wings of Eagles, Anthony Van Dyke and Serpentine. It struck me from what you were saying there, all rather different horses, some with the, lots of pace and kick and um, some with that, that bit more stamina. Who's your fastest Derby contender this year? Who's the one with the speed? Oh, it's a, I suppose it's difficult. Uh, Nick, obviously, a changing of the guard is the horse that stays the best. Uh, he, he showed that, um, I suppose. Um, uh, the horse that won the D stakes, he, he's, he's a lazy way of going, but he can pick up and quick. And then I suppose the horse that won in Leprechaun is a, he's a very strong traveller. Um, like, and obviously, he, like, he, he would like a strong pace in a race. Um, like he is a strong traveller, so um, I suppose they're all different types. But I suppose the horse in Leperstown is the strongest traveller um, yeah, through I think you know. And how many would you expect to run in the Oaks, Aidan? Um, it's very possible that we we'll run three. I think we could run the filly that were second and third in the Irish Guineas, and we could run the filly from Chester as well. Um, that's what we're thinking at the moment. Like obviously, there's others in, and they could run, but they look like the three most obvious at the moment. And do you think one of those has taken a, a good step forward from her last run to to put it up to the the hot favourite Emily Up, John? Um, listen, uh, we've been very happy with him. Obviously, the one I've done much since last week, um, but we've been very happy with the canters and that. Um, Philly from Chester has came forward. She's a filly. A very big filly that stays well and will improve plenty as the year goes on, we think. And just finally, on a, on a day when we're talking about great riding, we often praise great rides in victory and rarely do we praise great rides in defeat. I wanted your appraisal of Ryan Moore on high definition at the Curra the other day because, to my eye, that was pretty damn good. Yeah, no, absolutely. We were delighted with him. I was delighted with his run. Um, like obviously he's a horse that uh, um, stays very well. He's very uncomplicated. Um, it just kind of all went a little bit wrong last year when he didn't get to run in the Derby and his whole career took a different pattern. Then he went to the Irish Derby and he, he, he kind of, he had a clip, he clipped heels in the middle of the race and it, kind of all his confidence went after that. But his, his, his runs this year that have been coming lovely, obviously, we were building up to uh, the Cora for his first day, his two runs. We, we didn't make the run with him. Um, we dropped him in and uh, we knew that when he, he would go in front, he, like he would be uh, tough. Uh, uh, Ryan set him off. He came out of the gates well and he stayed very well. Um, now we were delighted with the ride. He, Ryan gave him was a great ride, really. And uh, um, like we're looking forward to seeing him uh, whenever he runs again, really. You, you've got him in the, the Coronation Cup. Are you... Are you thinking about it or are you sort of, was it a speculative? Yeah, no, we are thinking about it, but like 
he he did uh, it's only a couple of it's not long so it won't be two weeks uh, when he goes back and run and, and he did have a tough race so we'd probably leave it go down to the wire before we really decide whether we let him run or not I think okay Aidan thanks so much for your time just finally if you did get a ninth derby and you're going to be asked the question you you and the training ranks have done what Lester Piggott did it as a jockey how how much would that mean to you I know I think it's very special for everybody really um like I think everybody puts everything in and and they're like, like I say all oh, we're a very small part of a very big team and uh, very grateful to be the part we are but it would mean so much to everybody really um listen the derby is very tough race to win we, we try and compete in it every year and and uh but don't ever take anything for granted with it's very very tough very hard to win and uh like we we try our very best to, to try and, and uh, win it this year, but it, it is very hard to win, very tough race, Nick. Aidan, we're looking forward to seeing you next weekend. Thanks so much for your thoughts, particularly on Leicester. Yeah, pleasure, Nick. Thank you. Aidan O'Brien uh, set to saddle several horses in the uh, Kazoo Derby in a bid for his ninth success. If you were just joining us, uh, we woke this morning to the news of the death of Leicester Piggott at the age of 86. Uh, he, he had been unwell but I think the news as he passed away this morning in the early hours in Switzerland still came as a great shock uh, to his family who described themselves as shocked and devastated. One man who shared a, a weighing room, a jockey's room with Lester Piggott for many years um, and is now uh, closely involved with a horse who may may yet win the derby is, is Bruce Raymond who's, who's on the line now. Bruce, good morning. Good morning. Good, good morning, Nick. Um, we spoke at some length with, with Willie Carson earlier today. Um, you and, and Willie uh, knew Lester very well uh, and, and spent many, many days with him. I'm sure some happy, some deeply frustrating, particularly if you were trying to compete with him. What for you will be your abiding memories of him? Well, he was, uh, as you say, he was tough, very tough to compete with. And uh, I think... You know, he, but we were all defensive of him. I was just thinking about, it. you know, we were Willie and I, and um, we rode with some great, really tough jockeys where they used to sort of, I wouldn't say beat each other up, but you had to respect them, Frankie Durr and Eric Elder and people like that. And they were quite, you know, they get quite angry when he used to jog us off. But if you went away uh, abroad and somebody said anything about Leicester Pickett, they'd immediately be very defensive of him and, and try to say, well, you're not you're not good enough to clean his boots and things like that. And so, but it was, um, yeah, it was a, a, a good, I feel very privileged to have been able to ride with him. So it was, it was infuriating, but at the same time, you knew just what you were up against. Definitely, for sure, for sure, yes, yes. I, I, um, I don't know, he was... I have lots and lots of stories about him, but they're, they're mostly around the dinner table, Nick, that's the thing, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he was very tough to ride with, and he used to just... I don't know, just jump out and get the fence in those days and uh, and watch out for him. And I, I think everybody was frightened of him. If he was in the race, you're not frightened, but you you didn't know when he was going to pop up on you. That's all the thing. Do you think if he was riding in a race, it would force other people to to make mistakes or to to preempt something that might not happen? Yeah, I'm not sure about that, Nick. But I just think you you. 
I think as Willie Willie said before, it made everybody a better jockey because we're all. I think all jockeys even now copy their try to try to copy their uh, their champions. You know, people keep copying um, Kieran Fallon and people in in his era. But I so I think everybody was you couldn't actually copy him. But we were trying to do the the right thing and uh, ride in his style. Everybody was riding shorter and with their bottoms up in the air. Um, so I, I, I think so. I don't think we were too frightened of him. Respecting every, you never knew. You never knew he where he was in the race, and he would do odd things. If he pulled off the fence, you knew something was going to happen in front. And, and when you say he did odd things, do you think that was simply because his instincts were sharper? He just had that that natural instinct. Yeah, I mean, I I, 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 I remember winning on a horse in France of. Um, of Robert Armstrong's, I think it's called Be My Native. I'm not sure what it won, Group 3 race or something. And I think he rode it in the coronation, jumped out and went flat out all the way, a mile and a half. I'd run it a mile and a quarter. He rode it a mile and a half, flat out, really fast. And afterwards I said, well, what made you lead? He said, I, I thought it was the right idea, the good thing to do. So um, he used to do things like that. He did different things on horses, and when some... People used to say nobody else would have won on it. In there are occasions when nobody would have won on it because he used to do completely different things on a horse. People quite often talk about his his strength, you know, particularly his his strength in a finish, how he could sort of lift one lift mm. one home. But do you believe his his edge was more a more a tactical one than one of strength? I think both. I really think both because yeah, he was he knew where everybody was going to do going to do in the race before they they really knew. He knew um, where everybody was going to be placed and how it just came natural with him. I don't think he had to really um, study it so much. He just knew where everybody or or the main opposition or how they would ride their horse and and. Of course, in in a finish, he was very very much stronger than anybody else. But you could do those those, those sort of things at those days, and he would always keep a very tight hold of a horse's head in in a finish. And unlike Gordon Richards or or uh, Kieran Fallon, who used to have ride on a loose rein in different, completely different eras. It's quite easy to to draw together the strands to paint a a portrait of Lester Piggott the jockey. It's less straightforward to paint a portrait of Lester Piggott the man because he was clearly a a fascinating complex multi-dimensional person and rather enigmatic to most of us not necessarily to you Bruce if I was to say to you who was Lester Piggott who was the man what would you say uh, um, yeah well, I think you're right he was I equate him to someone like um, uh, Frank Sinatra or, or that, that everybody said, what was he really like? And uh, he had this aura around him that uh, even when he was when he was sitting in the same room, if he walked into a crowded room, people would know he's walked in without walking, turning round. It was that sort of thing. And he had this, we used to think of him like Clint Eastwood at the time, going in and out of the steward's room. And um, yeah, yes, he's just, and he was very, although he had this, um, reputation of being very mean and very careful. He he was very very generous with his time for for other people. And if 
a jockey had had a fall, no matter who who they were, a top jockey or younger jockey, he would definitely give them a call when he got home and see how are you and how's things and do you need anything and if they were being taken care of. I know he was very generous with his time with those sort of people. Bruce, to what extent do you think that that aura was 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 cultivated in order to enable him to maintain his standing? Uh, well, I don't, I, yeah, was it cultivated? I don't. I think it just came natural, as as Willie Willie said, he had this imped, impediment in his speech, and he was just very very quiet. Um, I, and I, I I went over to see him a couple of weeks ago. And we were just chit-chatting about. He wasn't very well, and chit-chatting about old and things. Old, old. What I was trying to make a conversation, and he was he was just saying, "Yeah, well, it's, it's all history now. It doesn't really matter, does it?" <laughs> well, that's to other people, but not to him. And uh, I, I, I just think he, he. I think this aura became natural, natural to him. He definitely knew that he was that we all loved him, and that he was famous. I'm sure of that. And he, he, but he was very casual about it, and he appreciated mm. everybody idolising him. I guess. But but at the same time, from what you were saying, some slightly kind of not blasé is the wrong word. Casual is the word you used about about his own about his own achievements. And do you think that that's what prolonged his career? That that really he was kind of empty unless he was looking toward the next one. For sure, yeah. He did. He didn't think about. Um, he only thought about racing. And um, if I'm not, I'm not sure if that's ask, answering your question, but it, I've been. Uh, I was went skiing with him with his with with Jamie when he was a, a little boy, and uh, um, and uh, he he wasn't interested in skiing at all. He just went. He, I think he skied for one day. The rest he was watching Wolverhampton on television. In in we were in. Uh, Gestad or somewhere like that, and uh, I thought, you know, he's just totally dedicated to watch television. He had no other interests. Didn't read books. Didn't watch TV. Just only, only interested in horse racing. So uh, I think, um, I, I, I just, yeah, I don't know. You tell me. I don't know, Nick. Can't say any more about him. The the one, the only one bit of, you know, insight I can come up with myself, Bruce, is that. When I interviewed him at Epsom, maybe about four years ago, we sat down in a in a box there, um, and and we were bowled a bit of a googly because there was an incredibly loud tannoy test that was taking place for the entirety of the interview. And if yeah. there's one man you know you didn't want to interview when there was bla- blaring out the tannoy, it was Lester. Yes. But I do remember asking him about Frankel and Frankel's place in the firmament of great horses and who he believed were the greatest horses of the modern era. And without missing a beat, he just went, Seabird one, Rebo two, Frankel three, that's it. And it was that kind of absolute certainty, I thought, here's a man who just, you know, was in, completely in command of what he believed and thought about the sport and, and about horses. Definitely, yes. And, and everybody was always like, what was the best derby when he rode? And he was... Yeah, as you say, they were, he 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 knew in his mind, back of his mind, what the what the best horses were around at that time, and you wouldn't have thought of um, of a Rebo or something like that. But uh, obviously, most of us weren't born when he was around. But um, he just knew those 
those sort of things. And he didn't think about anything else except racing, horse racing all the time, uh, even till, till, till he passed away, I think. Um, you heard Willie earlier on, Bruce, and he said he, he sort of felt like he'd, he'd lost a limb, that little part of him had, had gone as well. Do, do, do you identify with that? I do indeed. Yeah, my, I'm, 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 my thoughts are with with Susan and and Tracy and, and daughters Tracy and Maureen, who've been going backwards and forwards um, a lot uh, recently. Um, and I just think, yeah, it's, it's sure. It's it's some. I knew he was he was ready to go, um, but it's something when they, when they've actually passed away, they're not sort of. Like how how how's Leicester today? It's gone, it, and it's it, that era is, as you say, it's completely just gone. And it's, we've got to start think about something else. I don't know. It's it's quite devastating, really, that he's no longer to say, no longer can you say how how how's he feeling? How's he today? Is he getting better? So it's Bruce, very very sad. Bruce, thank you so much for your time this morning. Not at all, Nick. No, thanks a lot. Bruce Raymond. And Bruce now, having been a, a fine jockey in his time and a contemporary of Leicester Piggott, is um, spending quite a bit of his time as racing manager Saeed Sahail, the owner of, of Desert Crown, amongst others, the current favourite for the Derby. Um, Desert Crown's trained by, by Sir Michael Stout, who provided some very notable moments in the career of Leicester Piggott and has had a couple of fairly notable moments of his own in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Sir Michael, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Um, Waking up this morning and, and having to say Lester Piggott has died at the age of 86 was, a, was a, a, I think, a very strange, strange moment and feeling. We know when, when, when people get old, the inevitable will happen. But um, just try, from your perspective, to give us some context as, as, to, as to the impact this man had on the sport. Yes, it was enormous <laughs> because everybody respected him so much. He was actually a genius on a racehorse. And uh, and he he could he could control a lot of things and get on the horses that he wanted to get onto. He had that extraordinary personality that perhaps we'll come on to in a moment. Um, when you when you started training and he rode for you a, a, a bit and with with some success as well. When you when you looked at him, when you tried to analyse what it was that made him better than everybody else or made him more successful than everyone else, perhaps I should say. What do you think it was? Well, I think that it was his knowledge. He made sure he knew about everything. And he was a genius on a racehorse. Uh, and you would have to sort of speak to a, 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 a jockey to explain what that, exactly what that meant. But, you know, he, he knew, he, he had the whole picture. And he, 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 um, he, yeah, he, every bit of information, it, it got into his tray. So he was, he was all seeing, all knowing. From a, from a trainer's point of view, when he did ride a horse, say a, a young horse, and I know he, he rode Shergar as a two-year-old, for yeah. example, um, how much could he give you when he, when he got off a horse? How much, sorry? How much could he give you when he got off a horse? Sorry, Nick, I can't hear. How much? How much? How much could he give you? What sort oh, of? Yeah. yeah. Well, it would depend on if he liked the horse or not. Um, <laughs> if he didn't, um, he was 
blunt. <laughs> but in fact, he, in 1980, he started coming around the house on an evening in, the, <laughs> in February and didn't say much. And then it came up that he'd fallen out with A and B and C. <laughs> and he was, he was looking around for some, for some horses. And the year went very well. Um, and we had some lovely two-year-olds that p p progressed at three, but everything changed whereby uh, Joe Mercer left Warren Place, so then he got pulled up to Warren Place, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he still, well, he still, we wrote Shergar and the Irish Derby, um, and then, he, yes, he, he won the guineas for me as well, um, both... Uh, on occasions when Walter was suspended. We'll have a look at the Irish Derby because uh, he he rode he rode Shergar for you on on this occasion. I mean, I think it's fair to say, to Michael, that this is the this is the spare ride of all spare rides, isn't it? But you've still got to you've still got to go there with all that pressure on and and, and deliver. Yeah, I don't think he felt very much pressure with him. He knew he was a machine. He knew him well as a two-year-old, and um, and when he got beaten at Doncaster. Um, by Beldale Fatter, albeit he said he, he's not quite right this horse. He says he, he hasn't he hasn't picked up like I expected him to. Um, there was no mistake at Epsom. There was no mistake at the current. This is a piece of footage you don't often see. We always see the, the replay of the Derby. We don't often see the replay of the Irish Derby. And I'd I'd quite forgotten just how just how easy that was as well. Yeah, yeah. The thing was, you know, Walter was 19 years old and he was winning too far on him. Sandown, Chester, Epsom. He was using up too much petrol. <laughs> Lester, Lester, Lester just gave him a, a, a lovely afternoon on the bridle. Ah, oh, very special. And the horse that you mentioned he won the 2000 guineas on was a horse called Shadid. That was in... 1985. So I suppose that's the that's the back end of the of the very long first chapter of his of his riding career. But the remarkable thing is, Michael, he his powers didn't seem to wane at all. Well, no, he was he had to be very powerful on Shadid. That was a that was a tough finish with Ben. And we're just going to have a look at it now. Um, Shadid over there on the on the far side, and as you say, he. He had to give him the absolute maximum. What was the thinking going into the race between the two of you? Well, we were confident because he'd won the Craven so well, but he was just below par on Guinea's Day, although it's a very good horse, it was second to him. Yeah, we were disappointed that he didn't do it in better fashion. But you had, you had the right man on your side. Yes. Is this one of those occasions where you thought, yeah, if it hadn't been for Leicester, I might not have won that? Well, was Willie on the second? <laughs> now you're going to have to tell me. I I I I, I can't remember. I'm not seeing the film. And uh, I think, let's. I think he was. That we can we can run the finish again. Um, ben was the horse who was runner-up, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I don't know if you 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 were probably out with the horses earlier, but I was chatting to to Willie earlier in the show. Yes. And obviously I had to I had to bring up Hot Grove and the Minstrel. Yeah. Um, which is a sort of iconic pig at Carson finish, isn't it? <laughs> Looking at it again, it looks like Willie on the second, doesn't it, Neil? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, but I and there weren't many better than Woody in the finish and otherwise. Yeah, it is Willie. Second again. Second again. <laughs> to the great man. Um, I, I'm speaking to Bruce a, a few moments ago, Bruce Raymond, Michael, and, and talking about Leicester the man, and he was he was adding some quite rich colour there and saying that there were quite a few attributes of his character that a, that a lot of people didn't really see. You know, you you saw what he wanted you to see, which was quite often not very much and something a bit enigmatic, yeah. but. If I was to, if I was to say to you, who was he? What sort of, what sort of man was he? What would you say? Well, I think he was a very clever man, and uh, it depended on the mood you caught him in. Right. He could be very loquacious and very interesting and amusing. Uh, yeah, he. Yes, he was changeable. <laughs> But, but fascinating. And you, you touched on that 1980 moment. You know, had had the cards fallen a different way, would there have been? Do you think a, a long, flourishing, burgeoning relationship in which he would have ridden you, you know, six dozen Group One winners? I don't know. I don't know how long he would have stayed. I, 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 um, I was hoping it would have been longer. <laughs> so. Slightly the one that got away, but of course at the time you did have a, you did have a pretty, a pretty brilliant young rider in Walter Swinburne in, in, well, in your hands. As a result, he, as a result, he came in and and uh, I had to give him the job because if, if I didn't, he would have gone to Peter Wall, and mm. my intention was to just have him riding, behind Leicester. Willie Carson talked earlier about how he dragged a whole generation of jockeys almost up to up to a better level, up to a better standard. Do you look back on that time in the 70s, or sort of late 60s, 70s, early 80s, as a golden generation of riders, or, or are we looking through rose-tinted specs? Oh, I think, it, I think there were a, a golden generation, I really do. Uh, and you had the Australians as well, you know, it was so much international talent. You press on forward, this week with the with the favourite for the derby in in Desert Crown, you've been you've been speaking very warmly about him in in recent days. It sounds as though everything's gone really smoothly up to this point. Is that is that right? That's what is, yeah, all is well. Yeah. We're having a a little look back at the the Dante here. Yes. Um, the Dante's a trial that you've you've liked before, timing wise. What do you like to see between this and the time he, he turns up to Epsom? What do you do with him at home? How much do you do with him? Well, it, de yeah, it depends on the individual. We've won a few Dantes that have gone, Dante horse, we have a few Dante horses that have gone and won at Epsom. Um, it, you know, I, I like the timing. I like, I like the names, Ma. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a trial that would be my favourite for a derby horse. Um, and yeah, things have yeah, Touchwood. Things have gone all right with this fella. He's he lacks a bit of experience, um, but I was very pleased with him in the trial, and we can only hope. You've taken horses with similarly little experience to Epsom before, and they've they've done very well. It, 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 what, I sort of wonder whether we overrate the concept of experience in terms of how many races horses have had. Uh, Sir Michael, if, if they've got the right temperament for it. 
No, I think the experience, you know, there's no substitute for that. Ideally, I would have preferred him to have had one or two more races. And do you think he has got the right mental approach for a derby? Yes, he did, he, he did things very well coming across the Navesmar at York. It's, all, it's always a good test, that. Um, he got the temperament for it. We'll just find out if he's good enough. Um, it's a big, big day for, for you and for him. It's a big day also for his rider, Richard Kingscote, who's a, a cool character for sure. I, I don't suppose the occasion's going to get to him too much. What is it you admire in him? Well, I think he's very intelligent and, uh, and, he, and he's a sympathetic rider and he can be strong when he needs to be. And we've had him in, riding quite a bit of work for the last two to three years and he's ridden a, a lot of winners and uh, I, I do rate him. Big day for you on Saturday and big day for him, of course, but we, we saw another, well, I think, potential star at Sandown earlier in the week, giving you yet another win in one of your, must be one of your favourite races, the Brilliant Gerard in, um, in Bay Bridge. Yes. Right. Where is this horse headed now? I'm, I'm guessing the Prince of Wales is and, and beyond, but could he go all the way to the very top and be one of the, one of the really good ones? Well, I can't tell you that now, but I was surprised that he won it so well at Sandown because he'd been off a long time and he's not the most extravagant home worker um, so that was a delight to, to see and yes he, he, he'll go for the Prince of Wales and there was just a nice little bit of cut in the ground at, at Sandown is he a horse that you'd be confident could replicate his form on any surface um, I think he's impervious to ground conditions, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want it very firm. Let's just have a look at the, the, the stout Brigadier Gerard winners. I, I read these out the other day. This is a, I don't know, I don't, I don't think you can see a monitor, but no. this, is a, this is a serious list. Um, Stagecraft was a very good horse. Opera House was a fabulous horse. Pilsudski was a great horse. Insatiable and not now catered were really good horses. Workforce, brilliant on his day. Carlton House, autocratic. Poet's Word was very good. And, and Baybridge. I mean, this is a, this is a, a wonderful uh, pantheon of talent. Where do you think he fits in there? Well, we need a little bit more evidence, but he's <laughs> going the right way. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your hunch? Oh, that, uh, yeah, I'm very sweet on him at the moment. That'll do. That'll do. We're looking forward to seeing him again in the, in the Prince of Wales. Is, um, Let us hope. Sir Michael. Um, thanks so much for your thoughts this morning, Pleasure. and particularly your thoughts on, on Lester Piggott. I'm very much looking forward to seeing you at Epsom at the weekend. Thank you very much, Nick. Cheers. Michael Stout. Um, and if we're talking today, uh, Neil Callan and David Menuisier, about greats of the game who choose their words carefully and you listen when they do speak we've just been hearing from one we've heard from two we've heard from Aidan O'Brien as well so. yeah yeah look uh, Sir Michael is um, he's top class trainer he's been around for a long time and uh, 
you know, the horse that won at Sandown, I was really impressed with him myself, you know, regard, regardless of the derby coming up, but I was very impressed with him and that the, the fact that earlier in the year he changed hands, you know, or a share of him changed hands to a stud kind of made you kind of sit up and think, oh, this could have a future this season. Yeah. So I just love the way he gallops. He just carries himself so well. He sticks his head out of the right, the right position and, you know, he really kind of attacks the ground in front of him. And, uh, you know, you don't win the Brigadier in that sort of style if you're not uh, pretty decent. Yeah, it was a beautiful performance, wasn't it? Sandown's yeah. a track you like very much, isn't it? When you, you like taking good ones there. My, my horses like it too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why, but yeah, we, we, we tend to do well there, yeah. Maybe it's the uphill finish. I find that uh, Sandown has a, has a reputation for being a front-running track. Mm -hmm. I've, I've won very few races from the front. I think you can, you can, you can win from wherever. Um, uh, depending on de depending on the pace, the pace of the race, but it's 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 a very nice fair track. It's quite interesting because Thursday morning Baybridge was I think 16, maybe even bigger for the Prince of Wales as Alaska, and I I looked and I th I saw Shariar was favourite, the Japanese horse who won in Dubai. Um, Adar was I think Adar was favourite actually. Shariar was second favourite, and. Um, Mishrif was, was third in, and you thought, well, we haven't seen Adair. Of course, he's now out. We don't really know what Mishrif is now. We might find out in a minute. Um, and we don't know whether the Japanese horse will be able to show his form here. And of course, did I take my own advice? Of course, I didn't. Um, and, then, and then watch this. He's going to take an awful lot of beating now, isn't he? Particularly given what Michael Stout just said. Oh, you should always go on your first instinct, Nick, and uh, don't hesitate. Mm. Um, We've got a stout-trained favourite for the derby, which a decade ago wouldn't have been at all unusual in Desert Crown. Is he, for you, very much the one to beat, David? Yeah, look, I mean, he was, he was very impressive uh, when he won at York. He did it very easily. He showed greenness still, you know, when he comes off the bridle, he still doesn't quite know what to do. And then he finds his balance and he quickens really well. It's an ideal trial. I mean, he, you know, he got a couple of slaps there. Yeah, look, I mean, he couldn't have won any easier, really. So, so it is a very impressive uh, performance, and and he should stay well too. So that that'd be great, and that would be great for for Sir Michael to 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 get back to the big time. Yeah, I'm guessing that he is somebody that that you would very much look up to. I know that sounds a bit mm. trite because, of course, he's one of the great trainers. Everyone does, but the way that you train horses, the way you like to take your time a little bit and be quite patient. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think he's, uh, he really is uh, the, he would be the icon for me to, uh, to try and, to try and, 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 and copy or reach uh, as much as, uh, as possible. Yeah, because he takes his time. He's, uh, he gives them time to get better with age, which is, you know, what uh, we are trying to, to do in a very humble way. If you've just joined us uh, on the show this morning, we woke today to the news of the death of Lester Piggott at the age of 86 uh, in Switzerland in the early hours of this morning. It's come, albeit that he was unwell and had been unwell for a little while, it has come as a, a great shock to everybody uh, in the horse racing industry. He has left such a, an enormous impact on this sport and truly was one in a generation. Um, 
I'm joined by multiple champion trainer uh, John Gosden. John, good morning. Good morning. Your, your early memories of, of Leicester, I have no doubt, will have left as big an impact on you as, as just about anyone, won't they? Yes, very much so. He was, uh, was with uh, Sir Noel Merlis, actually, in the 1970s, and then with Vincent O'Brien in the 1970s. And uh, there's no doubt they listened very carefully to everything he said, which was never very much, and uh, was really valued his opinion of the horses. Uh, and obviously, as a jockey, he was stupendous. Work mornings could be interesting, because he... Leicester operated by what he wanted to find out about the horses, so that was obviously to him very important, but uh, an absolute genius in the saddle. Uh, you get this sense speaking to, to everybody this morning, uh, from Bruff Scott through Willie Carson to Sir Michael to Aidan O'Brien, uh, Bruce Raymond. This is a man who danced to the beat of, of his own drum, or marched to the beat of his, of, of his own drum, but it, it didn't stop. The, the adulation for him amongst, amongst racing, racing fans? No, very much. He had a massive public following, and there was very much, the, in a sense, the mystery. What's Leicester thinking? What's he going to do? Yes, he's incredibly single-minded and in, intensely competitive and determined with a great dry sense of humour. I think probably one of the great descriptions of him was by Hugh McIlvenny, who referred to him as a, a volcano in an iceberg. And I think that very much was, was Leicester. An absolutely brilliant line. And I guess when, John, when you were, uh, as you say, working for, for Noel Merlis and Vincent O'Brien in the 70s, this was, this was peak Piggott, wasn't it? This is when he had a complete stranglehold on the game. Very much so. I mean, obviously, you know, he watched it. He, in a race, he'd be watching everyone else's horses as well, working out what he wanted to ride next time. He was so far ahead of it that way. And, and, and obviously... You know, commanded such respect. And when his, you know, when he came back in 1990 to win, we were all at Belmont to win on Royal Academy, sweeping wide on at Belmont, age 54. That that sort of, in a sense, defined the man that he was. He put his body through hell all those years to be below the, to get down to any kind of weight that he could ride in. It was extraordinary what he subjugated himself to, and he, and he's lived. He lived to the age of 86, which is an incredible achievement in itself. It's, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting, uh, that, and, and particularly go back in, going back to, to Belmont Park and, and Royal Academy, and Bruff said right at the beginning of the show, he just caught the smile. He just caught him actually smiling, having, having won a race, and sort of the, the broadest grin as he, as he pulled up. Do you think what you were describing there about the, the self-sacrifice that he had to put himself through, do you think that, that, that actually impinged on his enjoyment of the day-to-day -day business? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think he, he, he was quite mischievous. He might be waiting. We'd, we'd leave Sandown Park and we'd have to stop at Hamden Court to get, get the ice creams. And you guaranteed one thing. He'd get his ice cream, but you'd be paying for it. Um, and he, he loved tricks like that. He was at the races one time at Maison Lafitte. And he wanted to get to, to the airport, the plane, and so he just took this owner's car. So the owner came out 10 minutes later, no car. The owner never made it to the plane. I mean, less the light playing games like that. But he was, without doubt, the, the smartest, cleverest. And he was tremendous company. And I know Maureen and Tracy and the whole family have been with him. And, uh, and he's been he enjoyed watching his racing right up, right up to the end, I hear. So what a, what a guy. We'll miss him enormously. And, and that 
We talked a little earlier in the program about the, the, the legacy of, of Dr. O'Brien and Leicester together as one. That's a sort of trainer-jockey relationship that, that absolutely fascinates me, these two incredibly powerful personalities. I mean, you'd be closer to it than, than most. Just give me some flavour of that dynamic. Well, obviously, massive respect. But I remember once uh, working the minstrel in, um, back in early in the year at Ballet Doyle. He, he slightly did the opposite of what Vincent asked him to do. Uh, and Vincent was so, so, so upset about it, he wouldn't talk to him. And he said, he's not riding here for another month. And when he came back, he made him canter some horses in the rain on their own to report on their actions. That was just Vincent's way of saying, don't annoy me again. But they had an incredible relationship. And, and, and you know, horses like Vincent Arteus, Be My Guest, Try My Best, all in that year were, were extraordinary horses. And, you know, Lester rode his own way. In the, when he won the arc on a ledge, he didn't follow the instructions. He decided he was going to set his own gallop and do his own thing and control the race, which he so often did. Uh, and he won it. So he, he could... He could go against what was agreed, but then a jockey should be allowed to in a race. That's what it's all about. John, in your, in your career, how many, how many jockeys have changed the game, do you think, that you've seen and witnessed? Well, he obviously enormously, you know, and he's riding shorter than anyone else, but then look at, the, look at his height. But he had the most wonderful balance on a horse. Yes, he changed it in many ways, and no doubt Steve Gawson, when he came here, he had a huge influence in that early period. But there's no doubt that, um, you know, Leicester commanded such respect. Everyone wanted to follow him, but he, like all geniuses, he was impossible to follow. You couldn't imitate him because he was completely unique. So anyone imitating is going to be a very poor imitation. And, and to that extent, that's why he, he so often set the tone. And of course, with Scobie Breezley, they were battling it out for years in the championships. And you can you can remember i'm sure that level of superstardom that we can't really get a handle on nowadays i don't think well i think in fairness uh, you, you know racing was very central um it, you know it's only bigger than football hmm. i think we might have just lost john there i heard a little click and uh, and uh, and it, oh, you know, the right. following was enormous in British racing then. Yeah. Um, John, we, we move on to, to pay tribute to, to Lester Piggott uh, in the most appropriate environment possible at Epsom, where he, he just seemed to be the great conjurer, mesmerising everybody with, with all sorts of contrasting rides. Which do you think his finest Epsom ride was? I think the, the minstrel was pretty extraordinary, and that finish with um, with Willie Carson that was extraordinary in itself. I think the one that, that was wonderful to watch was Survivor. The Connaught looked like he got it with Sandy Barkley, and then the way, the way he produced that acceleration. I mean, Majinski, all of those Majinski and Triple Crown winner. But you know, I would have thought there was probably some a lot cleverer rides. But uh, he he was a, a great advisor. Uh, to, when he retired to young jockeys about how to ride Epsom, he came and talked to William Buick before he rode in the Derby first. So, but that was once he retired, you'd give you, he'd give you his thoughts. Not until then. Well, quite. We spoke to to Frankie earlier on. He doesn't need too much advice about how to ride Epsom these days. Um, how how confident are you feeling that he'll deliver you a, another Oaks winner on Friday? Well, you know the fillies are in good order. They've worked nicely coming in and. Uh, 
Holly sat up on Nashville this morning. So I think they're two lovely fillies. But, you know, until you take on Epsom and going a mile and a half for the first time, it's, it's you don't truly know. I mean, you've got to handle the track, you've got to handle the trip, you've got to handle everything else. So it's never given, but they, they seem in very good order at the moment. And do you, I mean, do you feel temperament-wise, I was asking Sir Michael the same question about Desert Crown, that they've got the, the requisite attributes. There's no, there's no sort of red flags that you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure about a bit of a carnival atmosphere or, you know, getting a bit buzzed up. Well, that's always a factor. You know, the, the, in the old days, we used to, pull up at the end of the chute and cross mm. the road and go through the gypsy encampment. It's uh, a little bit different. All the caravans, every shouting and screaming. They've got a long way to go now, of course. They've got a mile and a half to the start. We know what happened to Olivia Pelly a few years ago with that yeah. American filly. So that's that's quite a... It's demanding on the horse, but that's the whole point of Epsom, isn't it? To be mentally demanding and also demanding of speed, of stamina and agility. So it does ask a lot of questions. It's it's not what you'd necessarily peg out as the perfect race to, to run your, your your big one, but it's it's unique and it's uh, to that extent it, it demands of horses that no other track does. Uh, it's a, a nice story with the owner of uh, Emily Upjohn, John Shack, who's had a, a, a really interesting history in the sport. And I'd was chatting with uh, with with Tom Goff, who who's been quite closely involved with the story earlier in the week, and he was saying just that it, it's a great position to be in, but a, an invidious one in a way because the the filly's got such a huge reputation now that the the nerves are really starting to jangle. Are you managing to to keep everything cool for everyone? Well, I think well, Frankie, sort of, you know, having won a novice, well, sort of started talking about wow factors and things. Well, that's of course <laughs> is going to shorten the betting. Then, actually, when you put Frankie on these horses at the big meetings, they immediately the odds are shaved because he gets a, what I call a lot of just friendly punter people. Oh, that's Frank, I'll back him. And to that extent, you can always always say that uh, those horses go up too short when he jumps up on them. And uh, and if you put another jockey on, they probably might go something more realistic price. But look, I, I tend not to, to look at the betting. You, I know. It's not really, I think you've just got to get there on the day and hope that things go as smoothly as possible. We've talked about a lot in this in this show about great jockeys, jockeys who've mesmerised people and jockey trainer relationships. Uh, I, I did smile the other day when, you know, it's great for us because when Frankie lights the flame about a horse, it, it makes our lives just so much more interesting and, and great. But for, from your perspective as a trainer, how does it feel? Well, obviously, we prefer to, you know, keep <laughs> things a little bit more on a level pegging and just, you know, I, I've never believed in, in, in shouting about horses before races. I've always got respect for the opposition. You never know how the race is going to unfold, what the pace will be, will you get trouble in running. So I tend not to, I don't like banging drums too much before because uh, they can very be, be empty symbols quite quickly. Um, Sir Michael and I were talking about uh, not only about Desert Crown but about Baybridge. Wow, I, I know that trainers generally don't like to talk about other people's horses, but uh, being left in the wake by him, you must have been scratching your head thinking, I might have run into a bit of a monster. Well, no, actually, I was asking James Wigan about him the other day. I said, Where's that lovely horse, Baybridge? He said, Oh, he'll be out soon. I said, Oh, great. I mean, I was impressed with him last year. I thought what he did at Newbury, actually, in the London Gold Cup was was exceptional. And he's, you know, Michael's brought him along, obviously, very gently, very gradually. And it, he looked magnificent in the paddock. And I just thought, this is the one we've all got to beat straight away. But the way he uh, quickened, uh, he, he, left him all for, for, he left him all for dead. He's in the Prince of Wales, as I was just saying a few moments ago. I saw you still had 
um, a couple in there. Well, Mishriff was the obvious one who's, who's still there. Is he, is he anywhere near coming back? Mishriff, is he either be Prince of Wales or Eclipse, or just decide in the next 10 days? Has he, in, has he come back to, to good nick? Yeah, he had a bit of a rough trip, and it, they went mad, and uh, he got a lot of uh, dirt down his gullet and his face. So it didn't work out too well, but it worked out very well in the Saudi Cup the year before. So you can't always have a perfect trip. And I think to that extent, we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll be heading to one of the races, but we'll, we'll just see which ones. No, he's been a he's been a wonderful horse. It would be great to see him to see him come back. I mean, are you pretty hopeful that you can get him somewhere near his best? Well, that's I hope so. We'll be in trouble if we don't. <laughs> I mean, he's showing he's showing you nice things at home. That's all I'm yeah, asking. But, I guess. You know, we haven't done the stronger work yet, so we'll see. We you know we're just as likely to wait for the eclipse. Okay, um, John. Thanks so much for your thoughts this morning, particularly on on Leicester, and we'll catch up later in the week. So, bye. John Gosden, who with Sun Thady trains Emily Up, John and Nashua, um, market leaders for the for the Kazoo Oaks. Is it as straightforward as that, do you think, David, for the Oaks? Look, uh, Epsom is an enigma for, for many. So until you run the race, um, you never really know who's going to handle it or not. But I mean, I have to admit, uh, like everybody else, the feel is very impressive. So. It would be nice to have another superstar as well. And I completely understand why John Gosden wants to keep expectations managed. That's your job, really, as a, as a trainer in part, Neil. But it's equally understandable as to why Frankie Dettori wants to enthuse about her. Yeah, of course. Like, I mean, you've got to um, speak or appreciate, from Frankie's point of view, uh, what you've got coming up. So, you know, you've got to be excited about things like that. But I was at Sandown when she won uh, the mm -hmm. novice. and. Mm -hmm. Considering that she gave them, she carried a penalty. Um, she had seven pound penalty, and uh, she just destroyed them. And big, big, strong filly galloped out really well. Looked very, very well balanced, and um, she looked like she took a step forward at York. And uh, look, when you look at her, she looks like in the paddock. She looks like got an amazing temperament, and looks very, very easy to ride. So look, she's got all the attributes and everything there. But like Mr. Gosden said, it's a horse race. And you know, certain things can happen in a horse race that can be out of your control. So look, until they go and do it, you can only prep them, take them there in their best condition. And uh, for their purpose, hopefully everything goes nice and smooth for them. And it could be that the danger is within, in the shape of, of Nashua. I suppose the question with her, David, and you were probably there the day at Newbury, That's it. I mean, uh, all, all the questions will be answered uh, next Friday. I mean, uh, we can speculate as much as we want until uh, <laughs> until they run. We, we we won't really know, but there is there is a doubt, obviously. Well, if you have just joined us uh, today, we have been reflecting for much of the last two and a half hours on the news that broke this morning of the death of the greatest, one of the the modern greats of the sport. Lester Piggott at the age of 86 in Switzerland in the early hours of this morning. Our thoughts clearly with his many friends in the sport, his huge um, fan base in the sport, and particularly with his, uh, with his family, with his uh, daughters Maureen and Tracy and son uh, Jamie.
Um, the man with whom he was perhaps most closely associated in terms of a jockey-trainer relationship during his career was uh, Dr. Vincent O'Brien, another, another game-changer, another man who reshaped the sport. Um, many of his iconic derby successes on Sir Ivor and Golden Fleece and the Minstrel and Moor were for, for Dr. O'Brien uh, training out of Ballydoyle. Uh, Vince O'Brien's son Charles joins me on the line now. Charles, good morning. Morning, Nick. And, and for you, Charles, uh, Lester Piggott must have just been a massive part of your, your life, personally and, and professionally. Oh, he was, absolutely. When, when, I, was, when I was growing up um, in the 70s, you know, he was a, he was a figure every weekend. He was never he was never out of out of thinking um, at any stage. They had a very it wasn't always the most harmonious relationship the two of them had. Um, it could be pretty fraught at times, but uh, they had a lot of good days too. But if you if you look at the ebb and flow of of Leicester's career, this was a this was a partnership and a relationship that that stood a pretty decent test of time. Oh, it did, absolutely. I mean, very much, I think, as John Gosden said, they were both very, very intelligent men, but very strong-willed. And they kind of came to an arrangement where they both sort of did their own thing, but tried to coexist at the same time. One of the things they always used to do, which, which, I, which I always liked, was, say, on one of the big trial days at the start of the season, unless they'll come over and he might write, you know, four or five fillies, guineas horses, derby horses, whatever. There'd never be a debrief in the parade ring afterwards. It was always left till that evening. Lester would go home, he'd bring the video of the races home with him, he'd watch it at home, and then he'd call my dad at sort of 8 o'clock that evening after dinner, and they could spend maybe an hour on the phone discussing it then. There was, never, there was only a couple of you know, monosyllabic grunts immediately after the race. I think this is something that I've I've learned during the course of the last couple of hours, really, Charles, is that we could all see that he was instinctively brilliant. We could all see that he was the leader of his generation. But actually, it was about knowledge and a thirst for knowledge and a hunger to just be a step ahead in terms of what he knew as much as he was a step ahead of, in, in terms of his athletic ability or ability in the saddle. Oh, 100%. You know, he, he was not... I think, as, as we all know, he wasn't one to discuss it very much. But, you know, you knew that brain was working away very fast. I mean, it's, for instance, he might go off to, to Paris one day to, on a Sunday to ride at Longchamp. Nothing to do with my dad to ride for whoever else. And he'd come back and he'd call my dad and say, you know, there was a horse that finished fourth in the Group 3 there you should have a look at. And he might have even ridden in the race, but he was always just thinking a little bit outside the box. Yeah, because I was talking to Aidan a little earlier, earlier on about has there ever been another jockey in the history of the sport who's had such a had such a sort of interesting influence on the on, on a training establishment and on a on a on a breeding conglomerate? Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, 100 percent. And I think that, that it was probably a stroke of luck that it was left that ended up riding those northern dancers when they first came over. Mm. I mean, they weren't they weren't a, a straightforward breed at all. Um, starting off with Nijinsky, he was obviously the first. And he was very far from straightforward. And between, you know, the, the staff of Ballet Doyle and, the, and the, the training of him there and, and the relationship with Leicester, and obviously Liam Ward, who rode him as well, you know, it was a big help because, as I say, they weren't a straightforward breed. And, and as we all know, how dominant it's become in the last 40, 50 years. Yeah, I think there probably will not be a, 
a horse in in the Derby Oaks and Coronation Cup next weekend who's not directly descended descended from him. So you're not just talking about someone who is who is helping a, an enterprise along. You're almost talking about a jockey who's having a an influence on the entire breed. Yes, absolutely. As I say, they they weren't they weren't easy rides, a lot of them. And he was definitely able to coax more out of them than maybe anybody else would. Do you do you have a a personal memory, a particularly fond memory of of either one of those derbies or or a, or a race that he won for um, for your for your father. Uh, I suppose the one that always sticks in my mind is, is Royal Academy's Breeders' Cup um, because I was I was sort of full time in Ballydale that uh, working at that time, um, so that definitely has a memory and the comeback and the you know it being owned by a, the horse being owned by a public company and. The Breeders' Cup was only really in its infancy at that point. I don't know how many European winners there have been, but very few. Um, so that was a pretty special day. Uh, the lead-up to this, you read about it, it it's just extraordinary, because the, the fact that Leicester rode him seemed improbable right to, the, right to the 11th hour, really. Can you remember how all the pieces fit together? Oh, I can, yeah. I mean, I think, I think my father and John Magno are quite influential in him making his comeback. Um, you know, he'd been riding out in Newmarket, and I think they had dinner one day and, and they had lunch one day in Dublin. And they, they encouraged him, so he started riding out a bit and then rode a few winners, and then he came over with my dad and rode a few winners. And um, then we, I think John Reed was riding, had ridden Royal Academy all year, and he had a fall on Arc Day. Um, and we were at the Newmarket Sales, and I remember we walked into the Newmarket Sales, and there was a big tree on the left. I don't know whether Lester was hiding in it or behind us or what, but he suddenly <laughs> appeared from nowhere and suggested that he might ride Royal Academy in New York. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, this this knack, barring one notable exception, of course, in his life, of, of sort of being in the putting himself in the right spot at the right time was mm -hmm. was great. It was a bit like Michael Stout telling us earlier that he. 1980 had a very good group of two-year-olds and suddenly Le Leicester would be popping around every evening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. As I say, he definitely, he definitely kept his finger on the pulse. The brain never stopped working. Tell me a little bit about what, what Derby Day was like as, as Vincent O'Brien's son in the 70s. It was pretty, pretty traumatic because that was, there was no doubt there was only one race my dad really wanted to win. That was that was the, it was the derby and everything else was a was a distant second was the reality so every year you were you know you were looking at what horses there were and and, and balancing them around with the trials and you know hoping you'd come up with one that was good enough and then was there a possibility that Leicester might bail out and try and ride somebody else's horse which was very possible um no it was it was um it was always at the apex of the season really from the Ballydale point of view at that stage and and how much did and and uh, John and Sue Magna were were in touch earlier on in the program, you know, suggesting the extent to which he could drive him absolutely crackers, leaving his decision to decision to the eleventh hour. Is that something you can remember quite well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was. Uh, <laughs> my dad, my dad didn't have a huge amount of patience, but left the test of it to its utmost. But then it worked the other way too. I mean, um, he got on to Roberto when he wasn't really supposed to. Um, he, was, he was somebody else. He was Bill Williamson's ride, and, and Lester sort of chalked himself onto the horse. And he, I don't, really don't think he would have won for anyone else. That, that's probably the strongest ride I can remember he gave one. Yeah, that was Roberto in, in, in 72, and 72. Survivor, of course, was a, 
an absolute joy to watch. And the minstrel's probably the iconic one, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, it's probably the one that, that everyone remembers best. I suppose it's the most recent one. Yeah, um, back in, in 77. Um, um, Charles, if there's, if there's a couple of sentences in which you would sum up Lester Piggott the man, what would they be? Uh, he was completely unique. I mean, there have been great jockeys before him and there will be great jockeys after him. There are great jockeys after him. But he was entirely unique in the industry. He was, he was he, a little bit like in the Frankie's probably the only person who's done it, who's done it since. He's transcended racing and gone into the public consciousness. Charles, thanks so much for your time this morning. No problem. Charles O'Brien, son of the late uh, Dr. Vincent O'Brien, with whom Lester Piggott had such a, an extraordinary, sometimes volatile, but incredibly productive relationship. God, what times they were, Neil. You, I, I kind of feel this morning, I always want to go back and feel a bit of that, a bit of that you know, horse racing uh, 1970s atmosphere, really. Yeah, I was only born then, so. Yeah, well, you <laughs> and me both. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Yeah, I suppose after listening to all that, I'm not sure if I want to ride in that era. <laughs> there was too many good jockeys. But uh, look, it just, um, it's amazing how that kind of like sets the tone stage or whatever it is for, for the racing in future, for them, for mm -hmm. us to look back at it and see how good they were. And, and then how good Leicester was. You know, it's, uh, you talk about so many great jockeys and there is and was, and there will be. And then you, and there's Leicester. You know, that's the way everybody seems to, seems to, to view it as. Um, he was just one of a kind. One of a kind. Uh, David Menwizzi, I bet, I bet you wished you'd been, been there then and could have, could have given him the leg up a few times. Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, I mean, also racing was probably the main uh, entertainment in those days and, and probably the main sport as well. Yeah. So that's one thing that, uh, well, Hopefully we will see again, but probably not. And uh, now, nah, look, he's, he's absolutely extraordinary, and or he was, and, and um, no, nah, it, it would have been a privilege, really. Mm. And it's been fantastic to see him so many times at the Derby uh, since his well, since his, his second retirement. It's been a uh, an amazing life, an extraordinary career, and it's been pointed out not once but more than once over the last two and a half hours, Neil, that given what he had to put himself through to ride in that many races and ride for so long, to, to have this full life to the age of 86 was an achievement in, in, an, in and of itself. Yeah, it's an amazing that like, not just his, uh, his career and his riding abilities be celebrated. You know, of course, everybody, it's a very sad day because it's quite abrupt. It's only like recently we thought that he was starting to improve and he might go home, but um, you know, it's quite a shock to hear. And you know, I suppose when you look at it, then you go like, well, you know, actually, you've got to celebrate these sort of things. Mm -hmm. You've got to appreciate what he has given future jockeys, even now and going forward, um, something to look up to and something to aspire to. Um, but, you know, it's funny, actually, I have a story. Um, years ago, he was, um, I was about to get married and uh, one of my best friends used to drive him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came and played golf with us. He used to love going playing golf. And he used to always go to Bury St. Edmunds and go like 4 p.m. off peak time, cheapest. <laughs> and he would always play at that time as well because the, the, um, the pro shop would be shut. Mm -hmm. 
and we'd go in and he'd uh, rent a cart to pull his, his trolley or to, to his bag and uh, to, to hire the trolley was like two pound and you'd always get the, the center thing for the, for the bag to sit on and you had to get it from the pro shop. So he obviously rented it, got it, we played. By the time we come back, the pro shop was shut. So he put the attachment in his boot and forevermore after that, he kept it. <laughs> So he didn't have to pay two pounds to rent his trolley ever again. <laughs> As we said a little bit earlier on, the man who marched to the beat of his own drum, the singular, brilliant, spectacular talent that was Lester Piggott. David, Neil, thank you very much for your company today. Thank you. Thank you very much for watching through the last two and a half hours of as we've paid tribute to the one of one of the most extraordinary and dominant mercurial enigmatic talents any sport has ever seen, Lester Piggott, who died this morning. Most of the time they used to say, you know, you know, you know what to do. That was the best way. Driver going clear and stretching out like a great horse. He's coming up to the line, the winner of the 2000 Guinness. He had that bit of brilliance about him. And he had this great turn of speed, you know. It's marvellous to win. You know, but it's every day, isn't it? Nijinsky coming away from Gier on the far side, then Stentino, then Craigmore, then Venable. It's Nijinsky, an easy winner of the derby. Nijinsky the winner. There's nowhere quite like it. The track is, is different. It's Lester Piggott on the near side, the Mitro. It's between these two, it's going to be very close. The Mitro on the near side, just the winner. Lester Piggott's going to take his 30th classic. Rodrigo de Triano is going to take it. At the line, Rodrigo de Triano the winner. That was really, you know, to, to, to think that people want to meet you, isn't it? And there we are, ladies and gentlemen. A lifetime bronze from...